Well, once again, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? That may be the last time in the history of this church you'll ever hear me say those words. <laughs> we should finish John 17 today. But if you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Find ourselves finishing John 17 which uh, contains the greatest prayer in the Bible, the prayer of Jesus to his Father, a series we've entitled With Jesus Behind the Veil, because truly this is a holy of holies prayer. And yet, let me say one more time, that even though this prayer was directed to the Father, Jesus prayed uh, this prayer with his disciples standing there listening. Now you ask yourself, many times the Lord went off by himself and prayed alone with his Father. But here he makes it a point to pray the most important prayer in the Bible in their presence. Why? Well, very simply, I believe it was because he wanted them to know and understand what was most important to him with regard to their welfare in the kingdom of God going forward. But these are the things that he wanted them to focus on their prayers. Once he had gone back to the Father and they began to do the work of the kingdom in his absence, of course the Spirit of God would be with them. But um, he wanted these things to be constantly things they prayed for one another. So this prayer is divided into three main parts. Just simply, we just divide it into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 through five, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that had been with him for those three and a half years, verses six to 19. And then Jesus expands this and prays for all believers throughout the entire church age, verses 20 to 26. Now today we want to finish looking at that third part of Jesus' prayer where he prays for all believers. And just look at verse 20, where he said to his father, I do not pray for these alone. Not just for my disciples that have been with me these three and a half years. I pray for all those who would believe in me through their word. So here in this section, Jesus is praying for all those who would believe in him down through the centuries. What was it that Jesus prayed for, for all of us who would come to believe in him, starting with that night, the night before the cross, praying for these disciples that walk with him, but then expanding it, uh, into the present day, and then all through the church age, those who would come to Christ. What was on his heart? What was he burdened to pray for with regard to all of us who are his people? Well, Jesus' final prayer for all of us uh, can be stated in three words. Three words that relate to three great themes of the Christian life. Not the only ones, but three of the most important ones. And that would be unity, glory, and agape. Now, unity is first, verses 20 and 21. And uh, the idea with regard to unity is that uh, Jesus wanted his disciples to walk in practical fellowship and oneness uh, among themselves. That was the first thing on his heart that night, which he lifted up his, to his father. And... Um, he, he mentions this earlier in this prayer, verse 11, where he prayed for those that had been walking with him for those three and a half years. And now he expands it to include all believers, praying for our unity. Verse 20, 
I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Let me stop there. So here Jesus is praying that the Father would keep his disciples in unity. Why was unity, the unity of his disciples, both back then and today, even up until today, uh, back then and now, why, why was the unity of his disciples so, on, so heavy on Jesus' heart and mind that night? I mean, think about that. Uh, there are a lot of things he could bring up. And, and the reason we have taken so long in chapter 17 is because we need to know the heart of Jesus. Not what somebody tells you is the heart of Jesus. There's a lot of folks out there telling you Jesus' heart is to give you a new Cadillac. To prosper your business to beyond anyone could ever imagine. To give you the nicest house in town. Maybe a boat or two. Who knows? They're all over the TV and radio. A lot of folks that want to tell you what's really heavy on Jesus' heart for your life. But I want to hear from Jesus himself. And that's why we have taken our time. Because I want to know from the heart of my Savior what he's most concerned about. Because that needs to be what I'm most concerned about. In my own life and for the lives of God's people. And unity, guys, was the first thing that came, to, came forward in this prayer. Um, that, that they would, um, and let me say this. He knew that unity among his disciples would be critical. If they were going to be victorious over the devil and spiritual warfare was definitely on his heart that night. He, it comes across in his prayer. But he wanted them to know that unity would be absolutely critical if they were going to be victorious against the devil and successful in the ministry he had called them to do. We call it the Great Commission. Now, those are really flip sides of the same coin. If you're, success, if you're uh, victorious over the devil, you will be successful in ministry and vice versa. And so unity among his disciples was something on Jesus' heart and mind that night. Listen, a unity that would start with their unity with Jesus himself. That's very important. Again, verse 20. Father, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, let me just say this first of all. As Jesus said in verse 21, the unity of Christians towards one another is one of the greatest witnessing tools we have. I'm not sure a lot of Christians realize this, because a lot of Christians are given them, have given themselves over to division and infighting and backbiting and so on. So when you talk about unity, it doesn't resonate with them, doesn't really register on their spiritual meter, because honestly, they're not really into that. It's all about them being right and proving everybody else wrong. But we're talking about spirit-filled believers now. Unity among spirit-filled believers, right? Those that are walking in the spirit, desire to honor Jesus, that is one of the greatest witnessing tools we have. And I'm not overstating it. Jesus said it in verse 21, okay? True spiritual unity, guys, is first of all only in Jesus positionally. In other words, we don't really have unity with each other. I'm not talking about churches that have folks in them. Uh, they, well, we're one church. We're in unity. Well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. I'm talking about the unity that comes when you're born again, 
You've received Christ into your heart, and you are connected to one another. You're, you're, you're members of one body. Collectively, we have a unity with one another that is spiritual in nature. And that's what we're talking about among those that are genuinely born again, collectively members of his body. But practically speaking now, that's spiritual unity. Okay, that's invisible, by the way. That's, that's the invisible church. What do I mean? Uh, God knows who they are, but they're connected in Christ. Uh, they're not the visible church on the corner, but the invisible church that God sees made up of all of his people, those who are born again. But practically speaking, now practical unity, which is very important, um, practically speaking, unity will only be genuine, ongoing, and powerful, listen, if it is built on God's love. Again, there's a lot of churches that have a sense of unity because they are connected denominationally. Denominationally. But theirs is a denominational unity oftentimes um, that really is based on empty sectarianism. That's all it is. They, they feel connected because they have a name. Well, remember what Jesus said in um, Revelation 3? I think it was verse 2. Uh, when he dictated the letters of seven churches, he talked about Sardis, how that you have a name and you think you're alive, but you're really dead. That's dead denominationalism, all right? Where people feel connected because they belong to a certain denomination, but really, um, again, there's a lot of bitterness and infighting and backbiting. Um, that's just often empty sectarianism. The unity we're talking about and what Jesus was talking about is a true spiritual unity. And as Jesus said earlier that night in the upper room, this would be in chapter 13, uh, the unity that he was looking for and, and praying for in John 17 was a unity rooted in the love of God. And when you have it, when a church really is walking in the spirit and they really are walking in spiritual unity with one another, that is an incontrovertible evidence that we, they, belong to Jesus Christ. And the world can't deny it. Jesus said it in John 13. Let's read verses 34 and 5. He said, I give you a new commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And the word agape is through all these words. It says love. It's agape, God's love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, listen, all will know. This is a, an evidence to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ, that all will know that you are my disciples if you have love, God's love, fervent love, agape love, sacrificial love for one another. That's very important, all right? And uh, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But then Jesus goes on in verse 22 to make a somewhat cryptic statement. Now, hang in there. Okay, I don't want to lose you, not because you're too dumb to follow me, like I'm so smart. I have a tendency, I get into this, and sometimes I'm in the weeds. It's good, it's good weeds. I'm, maybe it's not the weeds. It's God's word. But I, my thoughts are just all kinds of things are coming in, in my head, and I'm trying to write fur furiously as I'm typing. Sometimes you're like, wow, I'm, I'm going to try my best. But, but this is an important subject that he mentions here. Um, he said, let me see the, read it again, verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are, are one. Uh, just what glory is Jesus talking about here? 
that the Father had given to him, and now he is passing along to his disciples. I'll give you this, whatever it is, Jesus himself said it is the basis for our unity in him. Well, we don't have to guess. The Bible is very clear on this. I'll read to you out of Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 4, where Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep, listen, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and there is one Spirit. And then the passage goes on. The unity that we have is through the Holy Spirit. And somehow that unity of the Spirit is connected to this glory he's talking about. Well, we know the subject of the Holy Spirit was on his heart and mind that night. He brought it up earlier that evening in chapter 14. Remember how he said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give to you another helper, that he might abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive, it neither knows him nor sees him, but you know him, for he is with you and shall be in you. So this, the idea of the Holy Spirit was going to be sent back. All right, I'm going away. Uh, I can't be with you much longer. But I'm not going to leave you alone and helpless like orphans. I will send another comforter, another helper, the Spirit of Truth. When I get to my Father, when I send back to the Father, I'll pray to the Father. He will send this new helper, okay, who will be with you. God, in the Spirit, who will be with you always, never leave you. i got to go soon back to the Father, but... The Spirit, when He comes, will abide with you forever. He'll never leave you, right? Nor forsake you. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, we know, is the basis for our unity as disciples of Jesus. But again, what glory is Jesus talking about that the Father had given to Him and He was now passing on to His disciples? Well, let me just say this. Um, as we stated when we first started looking at John 17 a couple years ago. No, it wasn't that long been a long series okay not two years don't go there but when we first started John 17 um, we talked about God's glory because Jesus brought it up and we'll talk about that more in a second but God's glory when we defined it is a lot of things that we as Christians we believe yet we have a hard time defining so you know we, we pretty much understand God's glory but if somebody came to you and said look I've been reading the Bible what is God's glory? You might have to think a little bit because we don't always, we can't readily, you know, express to others what is in our hearts with regard to some of these theological topics. But very simply, God's glory consists in or is made up of, listen, his intrinsic eternal attributes. What are the attributes of God? It's who he is, basically. It's who he is in character and nature. That is the glory of God. And these attributes are exclusive to God's nature. In other words, they're not in the nature of fallen man. We can't, you know, I mean, uh, the, everything that, is, that, that relates to God's nature is of God exclusively. Is of God exclusively. Can we be partakers? Yeah, hang on to that thought. But it was his character, his nature. Well, I'm going to say it right now, see? Very good. You don't have to hang on that long. Can we be a part of this nature? God's nature, of course. Um, because the Bible says that 
He instilled his nature into us at the moment of salvation through the Holy Spirit. We've talked about Peter. Peter mentions this, 2 Peter 1, verse 4. He said that when we accepted Christ, at that moment, the Spirit of God moved in and we became partakers of God's divine nature. Now, I have, God, I have two natures then. I have my old fallen nature and I have my new nature in Christ. And guess what? They don't get along. Read Galatians 5, right? They're always at war with each other, fighting for dominance. Who gets to choose who is dominant? We do. We do. I can choose to walk in the Spirit and let the Spirit control me. I can choose to walk in the flesh and let the flesh control me. It's up to me. It's up to me. And so when Jesus says in verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, of course he is referring to the unity and oneness of himself with his church, that he is the head, we are his body, connected to Jesus and to one another through the Holy Spirit. Okay, we got that. It's pretty basic Christianity. But here, since we are one with him through the indwelling Holy Spirit, listen, we have access to God's attributes, which we just talked about, which if we walk in them, in other words, are spirit-filled and we walk in the spirit, we will bring glory to God by showing this world what he is truly like. We've already touched on this. We're just reviewing. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he started his prayer to the Father in John 17 in verse 4, he said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was the work Jesus came primarily to do on the earth? It was two parts. First of all, he came to die for our sins. That's obvious. But secondly, he came to set the record straight as to what God was really like. You see, the Jewish people related to God through the law. And even though God had said way back in Genesis 15, 6 about Abraham, it says that Abraham believed God and it was appointed to him for righteousness. So the gospel of grace was all the way from the very beginning. Yet the Jewish people focused on the law, 613 of them, which they didn't keep very well. And so because they kept breaking the laws of God, they kept seeing his judgment, his wrath. This gave them a concept of God that he was a wrathful, fire-breathing, red-eyed God that you couldn't get close to. And Jesus set the record straight in many different ways, not the least of which was the way he lived. But remember he said, you know, uh, when you pray, say, Abba, Father. That was a term little children use of their daddies. Uh, you know, in some cultures, Papa, Papa. How endearing is that? To, to teach people, you want to pray to your father in heaven and say, Papa, you know, you're in heaven, holy is your name. You know, and you go on. It speaks of that closeness, right? That, that endearment. But Jesus came to show this world what God was really like. A woman caught in the act of adultery. If she was caught in the act of adultery, where's the guy? Because they caught her in the very act. Jewish law said they both should be stoned. She was set up. They dragged her to Jesus. The law says she, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned. What do you say? I say those of you who have the, no sin cast the first stone. And he stooped down began to write in the dirt 
with his finger, right? Greek is katagraphe, to write against. I think he was writing against, I think he was listing their sins. Levi, you know, uh, Simeon, uh, you know, and they were the names of the guys in the crowd holding the rocks. They looked down, oh, I got to go, I think my wife is calling me, you know. Oh, yeah, I got to pick up some milk at the 7-Eleven, whatever. They peeled off one by one until finally she was left alone. He said, where are your condemners? You're those that condemn you, woman. I, I guess they're not here. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the heart of God. It's not in his nature to want to judge first. It's in his nature to show mercy first and forgiveness. This is, the, this is God in reality, in truth. And Jesus came to the earth to show the world what God was really like. And then, folks, listen to me. He passed that responsibility, that ministry, onto us. And now we are to show the world through our lives and our love what God is really like. Even as Jesus said in verse 10, And all mine are yours, Father, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. When we properly show this world what Jesus is like, it brings him glory. It brings him glory. Because his attributes are put on display. Now listen to me as we kind of give you a little curveball. Okay. Not only does Jesus want his disciples to bring him glory. Listen now. And this is really the heart of what he prays. He wants us to long for glory. What? This brings us to our second thing that Jesus prayed for all his disciples down through history. Glory. And the idea, guys, is that his disciples would keep their eyes on and long for the glory of heaven. I don't think I'm overstating this. This is one of the greatest truths, practical truths, that we as Christians can embrace and by God's grace apply to our lives. That we always have a longing for the glory of heaven. Let's read what Jesus said. It doesn't come through as clear um, as we would might like it, but I believe that was really what he was communicating to his father that night. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know uh, that you have sent me and have loved me uh, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Now, guys, let me just paraphrase what I think or get at what I think the Lord is really expressing here. A longing for heaven, which would be future glory, right? A longing for heaven or future glory was something that Jesus always had in his heart. If you study the Gospels, you realize that he came down here willingly. He came down out of love because he had a mission to fulfill, to die for us that we might live with him forever, right? So his, his mission was to come down to earth, lay his glory aside, not his divinity, he's always God, his glory, 
be born lowly, stable, and so on, to grow up in poverty, to spend the last three and a half years of his life going around doing good, preaching the gospel, delivering those who were bound by the devil, right? That was his mission. And he did it with all his heart because he loved us. But his heart, though, wanted to always be back in heaven with his father. That's where he wanted to be. He had to be here for a while, and, and so do we. But the Lord wanted us to have the same heart that he had. Yes, right now we're here. God wants us here. We're serving the Lord. Our heart should be here in the sense that we love the people we're trying to reach for Christ and those that have been reached for Christ. But, gosh, we want to go home. Paul said, I'm caught between, we would say, a rock and a hard place. I want to be with you guys still because it's good for you that we can be together and learn together and grow together. But I also want to be with Jesus in heaven. And that's kind of the, the paradox we, we wrestle with as believers. And I think it's legitimate. Here where God wants us, that's where my heart is. But my heart is also in heaven, wanting to be with Jesus. And this is what he was trying to communicate through this prayer that he wanted for his disciples. And the way he expressed it in this prayer was to pray that as he, Jesus, longed to be back in heaven with his Father, and he wanted a scripture that really hits this home, John 14, verse 28. He said, look, you know, if, if, you, if you really understood what it was like for me to be with the Father before I came down to be with you guys, you would be happy that I say to you, I'm going back to my Father soon. But just as Jesus longed to be back in heaven with his Father, he also wanted his disciples to long to be in heaven with him and the Father and the Spirit, of course, as well. Of course, Jesus expressed this because when people love one another and have to be separated from each other for a time, whether uh, you, are, you are a military family and you have a loved one that's maybe overseas, somewhere and you have to be separated for a time um, that's legitimate they have signed up to fight for our country and to protect us our country and all on foreign soil um, that's legitimate that is that's a wonderful calling and sacrificial love and operation but they long to see us again and we long to see them right we're not going to be happy until we're united again well, we can have that unity with each. Practically speaking, well, Jesus was about to go back to his Father. John 14 begins with that. I have to go away, but where, and where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet, but I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to take you to be with me. That we'll always be together from that point on. So this is what was on his heart, that he had to go away to prepare a place for them, right? John 14. But he was going to come back, and he was going to gather his church to himself, the rapture. And um, that's what he was longing for, to come and get us. But he also was wanting us to long to see him, to be united with him, right? Uh, very important that we understand this. And um, on a practical level, so he desired this because he loved us. I mean, when you love people and you have to be separated for a while, you long to see them again. That's what he was doing. And he wanted us to feel the same way about seeing him eventually someday and someday soon, right? But on a practical level, guys, he knew that without a passion for heaven, 
they could never fulfill the great commission here on earth. You've heard the expression, he or she is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I think the devil came up with that. Because that is not of God. I don't think you can be any heavenly good unless you are very earthly minded or and vice versa. I mean, you can't be very earthly good unless you have a mind that wants to see everybody in heaven someday and yourself included. In other words, guys, our success in the Christian life will be directly proportionate to how much we love the Lord in his coming kingdom or how much we love the world. Remember what, and this is spiritual warfare at its core. We talk about spiritual warfare and people associate demons and things like that, and that's part of it. But spiritual warfare at its core now is a fight for who is going to control your heart. The devil working through the flesh, getting you to love the world, or the spirit working in our hearts, causing us to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a lot to say in the New Testament about spiritual warfare. And John put it very simply. He said, look, in 1 John 2, he said, Do not love the world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And that is the secret to the Christian life. Jesus said it uh, in Matthew 6 when he said, look, he said, um, seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness and everything else you need in the physical, God will take care of. God knows we need food, water, shelter, clothing. He'll take care of it. He doesn't want us living at the level of our physical needs because unbelievers do that. He wants us to live at the level of the spirit. And the kingdom of God, that should be our passion and our heart. And when it is that we're serving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he will make sure that everything we need in the physical will be taken care of. But we have to be careful that we don't allow the world to consume us where we love it more than we love the things of God. For the verse 16, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure and Everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions, these are, these are not of the Father, but are of the world, and the world is fading away, along with everything in it. So focus on your walk with God, your ministry for God, because those things are eternal. Well, of course, Jesus said in Matthew 6, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, thieves can't break in and steal. And this is the very important, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't think we meditate on that statement enough. Whatever is driving your life, whatever is controlling and consuming you, and we all have to work, please. I'm not putting a guilt trip on that you have a job. That's not where I'm going. But whatever is driving you, what gets you up in the morning, right? That is what you treasure. That's what has a hold of your heart. If it's God, that's going to be obvious. If it's the world, that also will be obvious. Let's be honest with ourselves. What is really driving us? Uh, as Jesus said, where is our treasure? Because that's going to control our hearts. 
You know, one pastor I was reading said something with regard to this whole topic I thought was important enough to quote to you, even though it's a little long, it's worth your time. Okay, let me read it to you. This pastor said, and I quote, I once visited an isolated eastern city in the former Soviet Union where I met with 1,500 impoverished Christians. They were the descendants of exiles, and they and their ancestors had suffered terribly under Soviet oppression for three-quarters of a century. Their poverty was so severe that they had to work hard every day just to put food on the table. The subject that was most on their hearts, the most, what they wanted this pastor to speak on the most, was their future in the glory of heaven. I had the privilege of teaching them about, about that from Scripture for several hours. You think, my messages are long. All right. I feel good now. Um, I had the privilege of, of uh, teaching them about that from Scripture for several hours, and many were so overcome that they wept with joy. Their response was strikingly different from that of many Christians in the West who have things so good that they do not know what it is to long for heaven. As a result, they live as if going to heaven would be an, an unwelcome intrusion into their busy schedules and interruption of their career goals or vacation plans. They do not want to see heaven until they have enjoyed all the pleasures the world has to offer. When they have seen it all and done it all, or when age or sickness hinder their ability to enjoy those pleasures, then they will be ready for heaven. The author goes on, when the church loses its focus on heaven, it becomes self-indulgent and self-centered, materialistic and worldly, spiritually weak and lethargic. The pleasures and comforts of this present world consume too much of its time and energy. Believers forget that this world is not their true home, that they are citizens and strangers here, that their, uh, here, that their citizenship is in heaven, and that here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And he's got scriptures behind all of those. You can come up if you want to write them down. He said the church is increasingly in danger of not being so heavenly minded that it is no earthly good, but rather of being so rather of being so earthly minded that it is no heavenly good. A worldly minded church is the result of a disobedient church. The Lord Jesus Christ commanded his followers, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal for where your treasures there your heart will be also. Therefore, if, quoting Paul now, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, Paul wrote, Seek, keep seeking those things above where Christ is seated uh, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died spiritually, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, talking about the rapture, then you will also appear with him in glory, end quote. You know, Paul the Apostle tells us that living our lives focusing on the eternal and not on the temporal is the secret to dealing with persecution, tribulation, and hardships here on the earth. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18? He said, for our light affliction, can you imagine? None of us has been beaten up like Paul, and he considered those things light afflictions. I'm really convicted, okay, about what I complain about. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, this earthly life, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. This world is passing away. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Guys, the church of Jesus Christ has begun to enter into the apostasy the Bible warns us about in numerous places. Um, an apostasy that would characterize the last days. You remember what Paul said to a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Let me read it to you. He said, I solemnly urge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching from God's word. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome doctrine from the word of God. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord, Timothy. Work at telling others the good news, the gospel, and fully carry out the ministry God has given to you. Well, that's good, sound advice for all believers, not just pastors. All believers. But we have entered into the beginning of the great apostasy. Apostasy means falling away. And in the context we're talking about, it means falling away from the truth of God, from the faith. A lot of folks have moved away completely from the faith. Once delivered to the saints, right? Jude 3 or 4. What are, they, what are they embracing? Doctrines of men. How they can be wealthy and healthy and how they can you know, do this or that. Uh, a lot of false doctrine has come into the church as was prophesied. You have churches today that are churches in name only because they reject all the critical essential doctrines of the Christian faith, the virgin birth, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead. Instead, they embrace all kinds of woke things. You know, the, you know, the fact that, that uh, you know, God is for homosexuals and want, made them that way. And, uh, you know, there's, you, know you, you, you go by and you see on the marquees of some churches outside the marquee, the rainbow flag with the sign, Every, but we love everybody. Well, we love everybody too. We love the gay community. We love them enough to tell them the truth. I don't want them to go to hell. And I'm not going to get him to go to heaven by patting him on the back and saying, you're fine, God made you that way. But this apostasy is going to reach its zenith during the tribulation period when the Antichrist, who starts off as a world governmental leader, uh, goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, sets his image up in the Holy of Holies, and demands to be worshipped as God. He starts a new religion where he himself now is God. And his followers, so zealous to follow him as God, will kill anybody by the millions who doesn't think he's God, does not follow him. Who are we talking about? People who get saved during the tribulation period. Christians. We've been studying that a great deal in Revelation. So you can, you can get those you'll say CDs. No, you can't. We don't offer CDs. Go online. Uh, all right. And so, guys, on the night before his crucifixion, we just looked at two things that were on Jesus' heart, okay? First of all, he prays that all of us would have unity with each other. A unity, though, based on God's truth. Yes, the Holy Spirit, but a unity based on God's truth. Remember what he said there in verse 17. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by what? The truth. It's the truth that binds us together. People say, well, you know, the Mormons, they're working to stop abortion. Can't we partner with them? No. You can pray for them. But we only partner with those who are, we are one with through the Holy Spirit and bound together practically by God's truth. The Mormons don't have God's truth. They believe that, uh, that um, Jesus was the brother of Lucifer. Lucifer was the bad angel. Jesus was the good angel, right? And I'll, I'm not going to get into Mormon theology, but uh, no, we can't, we can't have unity with people that believe something vastly different than the Bible teaches about our Savior primarily, right? So unity was on this heart, but a unity based in the Spirit, built on God's Word. But also the glory of heaven, He wanted to fill their hearts, our hearts, motivate our lives, not the glory of earth or anything it offers. That's a very important thing. He prayed that the glory of heaven would always be in our hearts, that we would long for the glory of heaven so much so we don't long for the things of earth. And that brings us to the third thing, and we're not going to spend much time on this because we've already dealt with it in detail earlier in that night. Primarily, I'm thinking of John 15. So let me just touch on this briefly, and then we'll, we'll close. But unity, glory, and agape. And of course, the idea here is that God's love would always be in us, flowing through us as believers. Verse 24, once again, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, and will declare it, that, listen, the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Guys, the, this incredible prayer concludes with the great secret of the Christian of Christian living. Jesus and his love indwelling the believer. Now, guys, this was a theme that he had especially expressed to these men earlier in the evening. A theme he, he stressed over and over again the night before his crucifixion. We read to you John 13, verses 34 and 5. If uh, you have fervent love for each other, the world will know you belong to me. But how about John 15, if you turn there? So John 15, starting with verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may, be, may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. Verse 17, these things I do command you, that you love one another. And the idea, of course, and the love he's talking about is agape love. What is agape love? It's selfless love. It's sacrificial love. How did Jesus love us? He laid down his life for us. He died for us. How are we to love each other? To lay down our lives for one another. We may not be called upon to die literally, but we are to die to self. That's God's sacrificial love. That I put others, esteem others better than yourself, Paul said, right? 
But Jesus was hitting this on just a few hours before the cross because these were the most important themes he wanted to drive home again to reinforce, to remind them of before he was taken away from them. And so unity, glory, and agape, right? And as we've already s s seen in our series, The Vine and the Branches, which covered John 15, verses 1 to 8, the whole goal of the Christian life is to bear fruit for the glory of God. When we, when we think of spiritual fruit, we automatically think of the fruit of the Spirit. That Paul listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things you can't manufacture. They come from God is what he said, right? So we think of that. But the first on the list is love, right? And in fact, the word fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, he didn't say fruits, he said the fruit of the Spirit um, is singular, of course, causing some to believe that Paul only had in mind love when he talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And that everything else, the joy, the, the peace, the long-suffering, everything else was really a byproduct of love. If you really manifest God's love, which is the fruit of the Spirit, it will give rise to all kinds of other benefits like joy and peace and long-suffering and everything. Now, I'll let you wrestle with that. We threw it out. We studied John 15. That may be true. It may not be. That it might be, you know, all the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit. I don't know. I'll just, I know love is very important, right? Um, in an ultimate sense, guys, this fruit is simply the life of Christ being produced in our lives as Christians. Jesus said it's the Father's heart that we bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. What is that really? Okay, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians. But what is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? It's the nature of God. These are the attributes of God. And if we're going to get very, very focused, the ultimate, in an ultimate sense, fruit, this fruit, is simply the life of Christ being produced in a Christian's life. As we've already said, loving people as God commands us with his agape love, listen, is impossible for us. It's impossible because it is beyond human ability because it's a supernatural love. This is not a love I can generate or manufacture through hard work and raw determination. I need to love more. I'm going to, I'm going to grunt and strain and I'm going to love more. Watch. Does, does a, the apples, when you walk through an apple orchard, do you hear a lot of grunting and groaning as the tree is trying to produce apples? just happens naturally, right? Just hang, the apple hangs, hangs in there, connected to the branch, it's going to grow larger, fuller, and so on. The more we stay connected to Jesus, and this is what abiding is all about, continuing, remaining, uh, close to Christ, to prayer and the word and fellowship of Christians and so on. When you abide in Jesus Christ, the fruit just comes naturally. And the main fruit is he produces his life through our lives. And now the world doesn't see me, they see Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, right? And again, we talked about how this love cannot be manufactured. It comes from God because it's his nature. The Spirit of God was poured into us at the moment of salvation. Romans 5, verse 5. 
and uh, that we have the ability now because we have God's nature in us to manifest God's attributes and love is the first on the list right all right we're done let me just close by saying this um and i just touched on it it is through our abiding in christ and the power of the holy spirit flowing through us that again this kind of love becomes a reality because again it's out of touch with the people of the world they don't, they don't have this jesus said in john 15 4 abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. We just talked about that. See our study in John 15 if you want to get into this in more detail. But guys, let me just close by saying this. When I say close, I don't mean just this message. 19 weeks of John 17. <gasps> 19 weeks? Yeah, I checked it out. 19 weeks. Um, hey, when you compare it to eternity, it's just a drop in the bucket all right but listen as we close out this whole thing abiding in jesus is the key to everything he prayed for his disciples on that night before his crucifixion now, let me say it again i'm not overstating it abiding in jesus is the key theme woven throughout everything jesus said on this night but also had said throughout the course of his ministry Abiding in Jesus is the key to everything he prayed for his disciples on the night before the cross. And in fact, it is the key to everything God wants for us as, uh, wants for us as Christians in the Christian life in the way of bearing fruit for the, in the way of bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit and fulfilling the work he has called each of us to do here in the earth. It's all connected to the idea of abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ, of course, starts when you give your heart to Christ and are born of the Spirit. It goes on from that because it's an ongoing, everyday thing. Staying close to Christ, walking in fellowship with Jesus, right? All of this was made possible by what would happen a few hours later. Jesus going to the cross. And that now is the main focus of what we want to focus in on, starting with chapter 18. Everything he prayed, everything he desired for his guys, including all of us here today, can be traced back to the work he was going to do a few hours from this moment as he would die for the sins of for the sins of all of us that we might be saved and be united to him with him and have the spirit of god in our lives bearing fruit and so on so we will god willing begin to look at chapter 18 next time father we thank you for leading us through this incredible prayer and we ask, Lord, that you will continue to bless our time in this incredible gospel. That, Lord, all the truths that you have placed here for our learning, you would bring to our attention. And that, Lord, by your grace, give us the grace to apply them into our lives and walk in them as we walk in the Spirit each day. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.